The following recording is from Parramatta Christian Church. We pray that this message inspires you in your walk with Christ. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some fierce jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what they had been promised, since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily, easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not go, grow weary and lose heart. Excellent. Thank you, Christine. Well, before we jump into the Word, um, I have some very uh, wonderful and exciting news to share with you. Uh, we found out this week that Council has approved our DA. <laughs> Praise God. So it's, that's really exciting. We're thankful to God. It's been a long journey. Um, and there was question marks about parking and a whole bunch of things, but praise God, uh, it's approved. And so now we need to move on to the next stage, which is getting our construction drawings, getting tenders, and actually building the building. So those of you who have been waiting to give because you're waiting to see if this is going to be a real thing, it is a real thing. And we're on the clock now as far as council is concerned. Um, there's a time limit as to when we need to start construction. So I want you to begin to pray and ask the Lord how he wants you to be involved because it's exciting, but it's not going to happen unless we all together embrace this vision and be a part of it. So thank you for praying. Thank you for your support. Uh, thank you particularly for those who worked hard to get it to this point. Got a lot of work ahead of, of us, but we're going to do this together. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning uh, we're starting a new series um, and it's entitled Secure Faith in a Loving God. And we're going to, as you notice, jump back into the book of Hebrews. We're going to actually complete the book to finish off Hebrews 12 and 13. I haven't forgotten these last two chapters. Um, we are going to pick them up. But we're going to come to these, particularly chapter 12, with this lens, uh, Secure Faith in a Loving God, because it engages with some really difficult topics. And our theme for this year has been growing, growing in faith. And so it's to going to be deep faith we're going to explore and we're going to engage with some really hard things and this morning uh, I want to look at the topic of God and suffering and so uh, I'm going to ask you for lots of grace 
because uh, this is a, a very, very difficult topic, and I've got 25 minutes to try and cover it. So as you can imagine, I'm not going to do much more than just scratch the surface. Uh, but I'm, I'm hoping that what I share with you will be the beginning of you thinking more about it, engaging with this topic, and having a dialogue with the scriptures and a dialogue within community to explore this whole idea more. And I, it's a difficult, difficult topic for us to engage with because many of us, if not all of us, have experienced the reality of this in our lives and have struggled with the question of why. And I'm not going to be able to answer that question for you. Um, and this message is difficult for a lot of reasons. Um, one of them being that it's going to feel more like teaching rather than me preaching. And I hope that you'll find that helpful, but it's not going to be inspiring. Um, it's not going to make you feel like, yeah, that, well, maybe at the end we'll get there. And in the meantime, it's sitting with difficult stuff. It's difficult because we have to engage with Scripture, not our own thinking and our own ideas about this topic. And some of the verses we'll read are verses we would rather ignore or read over. But that's not what it means to be a people of God. We need to take his word seriously and engage with it seriously. And so it's going to be difficult for that reason as well. And so given the time constraints, I am going to move through pretty, pretty quickly um, and I hope you, you can keep up, and if not, talk to me afterwards, uh, and I'd love to engage with you more if I raise questions for you. So I guess as we launch out uh, identifying how this issue works, particularly for our culture, people really struggle with believing in the God of the Bible because of suffering. And the argument goes something like this. If God is all-powerful, then he cannot be all-loving, because why would an all-powerful God who can change situations allow evil to exist? If God is all-loving, then he cannot be all-powerful because his love would compel him to act. And since we see evil everywhere, it must mean that God has no control over it. Have you come across this in your workplace, university, in conversations with your family? This is a real tension, and we need to acknowledge it. This is a really, really difficult topic, and maybe you've wrestled with this. And I know I've had conversations with many of you wrestling with this issue. And uh, like I said, I'm not going to resolve it for you or answer any questions, but hopefully we can journey through this together. So uh, right at the start, we need to identify that there are some assumptions that kind of drive some of our difficulty with this topic. Uh, and sometimes we don't realize them. They stay hidden. But I want to kind of put them on the table and go, there are some of these assumptions that are operating that maybe are contributing to how we feel about some of this stuff. One of them is that, that there is an answer to this question. There's an answer to the origin of evil or an explanation for why there's suffering in the world. And people assume that the only people who don't know the answer is the Christians. But there is an answer out there somewhere. Well, I want to tell you that no one has an answer to this. No worldview, no religion has an answer. There are explanations, but not an answer. And we need to realize that, that we're not foolish or stupid or dumb because we don't have an answer to this question. Because there's an assumption that Christians, you should be able to explain this. And it's an assumption. Second assumption is that we can determine what is good and evil. And this is a big one. I want to suggest to you that good is always subjective. What's good for me is not always good for you. And I experienced this in Greece when I went into a leather store to buy a leather bag. And I said, will you give me a good price? And you know what he said to me? Good for who? <laughs> I said, fair comment. He said, because a good price for you won't be good for me. And sometimes we forget that. You know, in a courtroom, the verdict won't be good for both parties. Never. If it's a light sentence, the perpetrator is really happy, but the victim isn't. 
And so we have this assumption that I can determine what is going to be good and what is evil for everyone and in all situations and all circumstances. But the reality is that's an assumption and it's a huge one. And every day we realize that there are things that are good for me that might not be good for others. You know, again, my uncle told me this even in Sri Lanka. You know, a few years ago, it was really cheap to travel to Sri Lanka and the prices were great. That's good for me as a tourist with an Australian dollar, but it's not good for the local people. Now the prices have gone up. That's good for the local people, but that's not good for me. Good is very subjective. Related to that is this one, that we can know everything there is to know to make that decision about what is good and what's evil. And we often don't want to admit that we're really finite and limited in how much we actually do know about things. Uh, you know, I'll give you a scenario. Um, again, from my country of origin, Sri Lanka, um, a tsunami of, that affected many other places affected Sri Lanka. And in the wake of that, I mean, that's a terrible, horrible natural disaster, which is bad. But in the wake of that, so much money poured into the country, which we would say is a good thing. But that good thing led to so much corruption, even within the church, of how it was managed badly. Bad thing. And that bad thing led the government to pass laws about anti-conversion because Christians were using the money to manipulate people to become Christians. Good thing to pass the law, but then that law is now being used to bring persecution against the church because they're converting people in a gospel sense. Bad thing. Do we know enough to decide what is really good and what is really bad? We know so little. And it just made me think, there's a movie, I don't know if you've seen, called Looper. Uh, which is a fascinating look at this idea that if we knew how a person's future was going to be, say Adolf Hitler, if the world knew who that baby was going to be, would it have done something different? Makes you think, doesn't it? But we just don't know. Number four is if we can't understand it, then it can't be. And this is this idea that if I can't see the good of something, if I can't understand how this suffering has a point or a purpose, then there can't be one. There can't be a purpose. There can't be a point because I don't get it. But you and I know that there are so many things we don't get, but we accept as being true nonetheless. This is a big one, that love does not include pain. Every parent knows this is not true. right? We inflict pain sometimes on our kids because we love them, because we want something better for them. And yet we think that if God loves us, then he should not allow any pain or suffering into our life. That's an assumption. Related to that, that God's highest priorities are happiness. Uh, I've been guilty of that, and maybe you have. But really, when you read Scripture, you you see God's highest, highest priorities for us to know Him. And sometimes, suffering is the best way, the best pathway to bring us to a knowledge of Him. So, some assumptions. So, where all of that taken together really creates this impression that if we were God, we'd do a better job. That's really what it comes down to. We just think, you know what, God, when I think about your morality, when I think about your love, and your, I, I just don't think you've got it. I think I would do a better job than you at being God. That's really what it comes down to, which takes us all the way back to Genesis, really. And which is what the devil tempted Adam and Eve with. You can know. You can know. You can be God. So how does the Bible explain the existence of evil and suffering in our world? Well, there are three um, explanations for it. One is Satan. It's pretty obvious. Hebrews 2.14 says that he's the Lord of death. And, and everything associated with him brings pain, suffering, and death. 
And you read the Gospels, you see Jesus talking about casting out Satan because he brings bondage and death into people's lives. A second explanation is the fall. Genesis 3 radically changed everything. With the curse came pain and sickness and all kinds of catastrophic events. Our whole universe has been broken and, and is out of shape because of that one event. It was a cosmic event that changed all of history. And in, in Hebrews 5 and 8, we see this idea that, that death has come into the world because of our forefathers' original sin and rebellion. Another explanation is this one, our human freedom. That suffering and pain comes as a result of our own sinful choices. And we experience the consequences of that. We experience the, the judgment of God for that in some way. Or the sinful choices of other people that we then experience. The Bible explains pain and suffering that way. But that's, to stop here is to fall short. And this is where we want to stop as Christians. This is where we want to go. That's it. Just, just leave it at that. But the Bible doesn't allow us to. It, it, it has a, a much more deeper, profound awareness of what is happening in the world. And this, I remember come, came across, I came across this idea in these passages in Bible college and it floored me. It really floored me. And it asks the question, how is God involved in the pain and the suffering of our world and this is where our language fails us because there are things we we cannot ever say about God and evil but then we don't have the language to adequately explain it either so I'm not going to say something like God causes or determines because I think that's taking the biblical revelation too far because God is never tainted by evil but yet somehow is sovereign over evil. Here's the passage. This is a story where David numbers the fighting men, something he was forbidden to do in the law, and God judges Israel for it. In 1 Chronicles, it says this, Satan rose up against Israel. So we see that Satan, as we've mentioned, is a player in causing evil because a great suffering came as a result of this. He incited David to take a census. And then David, in verse 8, he says, says to God, God, I have sinned greatly. So we see Satan's involved, human freedom and sin and responsibility is involved. But then when we read the parallel story in 2 Samuel 24, look at what it says. Again, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. This is the exact same story. And he incited David against them. And David still says, I have sinned greatly. For some reason, this is not a problem to the Hebrew mind. They're able to read these things side by side in the, in the law, in the Torah, and go, yeah, okay. Satan incited David, the Lord incited David, David sinned, and we suffered. I don't have an explanation for you for that. I just can tell you that is what the Bible says. So somehow, God's a player in this discussion. The question is, in what sense? How is he a player? Some options. Number one, which is, I guess, where the secular mind generally is, that God does evil. He's a monster. He's not loving. Yeah, he's powerful, but he's not good. He's not loving. Just look at the chaos in the world. And for us as Christians, 
the Bible clearly says, no, that's not true. That's not right. Deuteronomy 32, I will proclaim the name of the Lord or praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. Even when we don't understand, we need to hold on to the truth of God's word. New Testament. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Jumping down to the end, he's the father of heavenly lights who does not change like a shifting shadow. Every good and perfect gift comes from him. How do we reconcile this? Well, we need to hold on to this truth that God is not evil. He's good. But if we were honest... The Bible everywhere, in the Old Testament particularly, and I was talking to someone just this week, when you read the Old Testament, you can't escape from the fact that people experience suffering and pain because of God's direct action, often in judgment. But here's the thing, for the Hebrew mind, that never posed an issue. Daniel 9 is probably the greatest example of that. Listen to what Daniel says, he's praying to God. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us. And you read Deuteronomy. Those things were bad things. Bad things. We have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has been ever done like what has been done in, to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses. All this disaster has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us. For the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. So God is not evil, he's not a monster. But he's certainly involved somehow. That's one option. We want to reject the world's argument, but wrestle with the tension. The second option is that God has no control over evil. He's loving, but he's not powerful. This is the idea of dualism, where God and evil exist as as two equal and opposite forces. And sometimes God wins, and sometimes evil wins. It's like the yin and the yang, or the force in Star Wars. Sometimes the dark side wins and sometimes the Jedis win. And, and that's how we kind of go, yeah, God's loving, and, 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 but he's not really in control over evil. And even within Christianity, uh, there is a sense where we want to say, you know, God so values human freedom that he gives us the freedom to do terrible things to each other. And he stands back and he's helpless and he's, he's watching and he's observing. And, and he, but he can't do anything. He, he, all he can do is pick up the pieces afterwards. And all he can do is try and fix things up. And all he can do is, you know, work with the mess and the chaos that we've caused and somehow bring about good out of that. But he's powerless to do anything at the moment. So that's another option and another view that, yeah, God is, is so loving, but he's, he doesn't have any real control. A third option is that God permits and allows evil. And this is probably where the, the bulk of us would probably sit very comfortably. We go, yeah, I'm, I'm okay to say that, you know, God doesn't kind of, whatever the word is, originate, cause, is control evil, but he permits, he allows it into our lives. But again, if you think about it, to be like this, to permit and allow something, is to be in control over it. So it doesn't really get God off the hook. It just makes us feel better about how we think about God. 
And, and this is a, a reasonable and an understandable tension because when we see the horrendous things that happen in our world, we don't want to attribute any of that to God and we want to try and distance him from it. But you've got to realize that that's something that we're trying to do. It's not something that the Bible does. And that's why we wrestle with this. So the last option, and I want to suggest the one that has the greatest biblical support, is that God directs and uses evil. He's in control over it. I don't fully understand how, but that's how I see God at work in the Bible. And let me give you some evidence. One, Genesis 20, God prevents evil. This is a story of Abimelech and Sarah where Abraham lies and Sarah, you know, Abimelech takes Sarah into his, you know, as one of his concubines or wives. And God, what does he do? He gives Abimelech a dream and says, don't do this. And Abimelech changes. He doesn't do it. He stops and he goes, God has stopped me from committing this evil. God permits evil. In other instances, Judges chapter 2, the Bible clearly states that God allowed Israel's enemies to oppress them and harass them and and bring them great pain and suffering. Why? Because he wanted them to repent and turn to him. I'll just say it like that. God permits it. God directs evil. This is a famous story of Joseph where he says, you know, you meant all this stuff for evil, but God meant it for good to bring me to Egypt to save a remnant, to protect his people. And God is in control of all of these human sinful actions to bring about his good purpose. And then God restricts evil. The famous example of that is in Job chapter 1, where Satan has to go and get permission every time. And God says, okay, you can go this far, but no more. Okay, you can go this far, but no more. All of this together shows me that God is good and he is in control of everything everything that's what makes him god and not me the best example the ultimate example the final example of all of this comes together in the cross and we can see that when you go to the book of acts it says in acts chapter 223 this man jesus was handed over to you Listen to these words, by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on a cross. And then in Acts 4, indeed Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So let me ask you this question, church. Who was responsible for the death of Jesus? In one sense, it's you. It's me. It's our sin. In another sense, it's the Jewish religious elite, the Pharisees, the teachers, the the scribes that were conspiring all the way. In another sense, it was the Roman government that sentenced him to death, Pilate and all those officials that were involved in that process. But in an ultimate sense, it was God who'd planned all of that, even the evil. And here's the other thing. Lest we forget that love and pain can coexist, look to the cross. The Father has no greater love for anyone than the Son. And yet the Son experiences no greater suffering than anyone. All that brings us to our text. How will we respond? Well, I think this is the question it all comes back to. Can we trust 
in the God of the Bible in the midst of our suffering? Can we trust this God? Well, I want to suggest to you that from our passage, there's so much here just in these few verses alone that can help us answer this question in the affirmative and say, yes, we can. You see, because in this passage we're told that Christians, we're not exempt from suffering. So let's not ever think that God has misled us or lied to us, promised us something that he's not delivering on. No way. You just read the Gospels. Jesus everywhere said, if you're going to follow me, prepare for bad things to happen. So this, this God that we follow, he's not conned us. He's not lied to us. He's not deceived us into telling us that it's not going to be this way. And in this passage, we see that these men and women who were faithful followers of God experienced great pain and suffering. Here's the other thing that I want you to observe from this passage. Nowhere does it say that God condemned them as sinners because of their suffering. Pain and suffering is not because you're a bad person. In fact, our text tells us that God commended these people for their faith. So don't believe the lie that says, if bad things are happening to me, I must have sinned. I must have done something wrong. And again, I want to balance that by saying, yes, our sin does bring consequences. Absolutely. But it's not because God hates you. Because we see here that God tells us to expect suffering. The second thing we can observe is that we are not alone in our suffering. It's not like bad things are just happening to me. God, this generous, good, kind, loving God has given us multiple examples of not just his son, but of other men and women who followed him faithfully in the midst of great suffering and pain. So that the writer, this writer who's writing to a church experiencing persecution and suffering and are at risk of walking away from their faith can use those examples to remind them to hold firm to their faith and not give up because they're not alone in their struggle. Which is one of the reasons we love connect groups and we do accountability where we split our men and women so we can share openly and honestly about what we're struggling with to hear others say, I've been there. I know your pain. And I'm with you. And I'm going to pray for you and stand with you and support you. Because there is great power in community. The other observation is that Jesus understands our suffering. Our God is not removed and distant and aloof. He's not some cosmic architect who stands back and just watches the chaos and doesn't engage. He's a God that stepped into the mess, stepped into the pain. Not that he made, but that we made. And he experiences the fullness of all pain and suffering to an infinite degree because he experienced what ultimate pain and suffering is, the abandonment of his own father. So that he could save us from never having to experience that. Jesus understands, which is why in this book, Hebrews, so many times we're reminded that he's a high priest that understands. He gets it. He's felt it. He knows it. And he's endured ultimate suffering for us to save us, to redeem us, to give us something far, far better. And Jesus triumphed over the forces of evil. We're told here that for the joy set before him, he endured. He endured the cross. And we're told that now he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That's a position of completion, of authority, of power, of reign. And the scriptures tell us that Jesus has defeated the power of sin, conquered over death, defeated Satan. All of those things that contribute to the evil in our world, Jesus has done something about. He's changed everything. And our text tells us the reason why Jesus was able to endure is because he saw something 
that we need to see more. The joy set before him. What is that joy? The joy is of being with us, united with the Father, enjoying bliss in heaven, in glory forever and ever, where Revelation reminds us that there is no pain, there is no suffering, there is no tears, there is no death, there is no war, there is no disease, there is no famine, there is nothing but joy in the presence of God for all eternity. It's that joy that helped him to hold on in the midst of his greatest suffering. The joy set before him. And we need to remind ourselves that we have a glorious hope. We have hope. Which is what the writer of the Hebrews wanted his readers to hear. That, you know, as bad as things are now, we have hope. And in, in Romans 8, one of those great passages that talk about the, the creation groaning and suffering, Paul says, you know what? The, this present suffering that we're experiencing, as bad as it might be, as horrible, as awful as it might be, does not compare with the glory, the joy that awaits us. We have a hope in the midst of it. And we're reminded here, the writer says, consider him, verse 3, who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus helps us to persevere as we look to him, as we remind ourselves of what he's accomplished for us on the cross, what he went through, experienced and endured for us as we see him on that cross with eyes full of love reaching out to us. It helps us, empowers us. And more than that, he's given us the Holy Spirit, as we've been talking about all through last month, to come and be our comforter, to remind us, to empower us, to encourage us, to strengthen us, to, to give us the, the, the courage to look beyond our pain to the hope that we have in him. So, brother, sister, believer, non-believer, I invite you to consider this God, the God of the Bible, who's not just displayed his great love for you in the cross, but who's able to so control evil that he can bring good out of it. He's a God that said, I will never leave you or forsake you in the midst of your pain and suffering. He's there weeping with you, brokenhearted with you in all that you go through. This is the God of the Bible. Yeah, it might not answer the why question, but maybe we need to change the question to a who question. In those moments of pain and suffering, who will we turn to? Who do we trust? Who is the one that we would put our lives in their hands? What other worldview, what other God, what other option will truly have the answers that the Christian worldview offers Let's bow our heads. Why don't you just take a moment to reflect, to consider, to wrestle, to push back, to surrender, to receive, to be filled again with the Spirit, with His love, His comfort, His grace his peace, his joy. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, God.
And as we're in this moment of reflection, maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. Or maybe you thought you were, or maybe you've been coming to church, but you've never really come before God and humbled yourself as a sinner that needs forgiveness and received His grace and His forgiveness and invited Him to be your Lord and your Savior. I don't want you to leave this place without doing something about that. This God is a God of great love and He's displayed His great love for you on the cross by sending His Son Jesus to die to pay the price and the penalty for all the mess and pain that you have caused, that I have caused because of our sin, because of our rebellion. And not just for the pain and suffering we've caused others, but for the grief that we've caused our Creator God who created us to know Him and to love Him and to be in relationship with Him. And He pardons us because He pours out the penalty and the judgment and the wrath and the anger that we deserved on himself through Jesus so that we can be offered relationship, forgiveness, welcome, love, joy. And I encourage you, if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, I'd love for you to slip up your hand and I'd love to pray with you. And at the end of the service, I'd love to talk with you and answer questions you might have. But in this moment, if you'd like me to pray for you because you'd like to receive God's forgiveness and receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I'd love for you to just put your hand up and I'll I'll pray for you. And if you're here and you're going through some really deep things, well, we would love to pray with you. And at the conclusion of this service, I invite you to come and we'd like to pray with you. Or if you just want to be filled with the Spirit of God more and be refreshed in His love and be overflowing in his joy and his peace and maybe there's no issue that you're going through you just want more of this God that we've talked about today this God who loves us incredibly who's in control of our lives and you want to receive more of him then we'd love to pray with you as well just because our Holy Spirit series is done doesn't mean we're done with the Holy Spirit and so I invite you to come and if you've got sickness and you'd like the team to pray with you for healing then we'd love to pray with you for that Whatever you need, whatever your circumstance or your situation, God knows and He cares and He's there and He's loving you and inviting you to trust in Him, to be secure in His love for you. Why don't we stand and just sing as Tim leads us. And if you'd like prayer, then please just leave your seat and come and let us pray with you and pray for you. And our team will come and begin to minister to you. Thank you for listening to the Parramatta Christian Church podcast. To hear other sermons or to find out more about our church, please visit our website at pcc.org.au.